Hi and welcome to episode 75 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. And today I've got my good buddy, Dr. Jose Antonio. Hey Joey, how you doing? I am doing great. I know you're, uh, it's kind of late in the day for you there in uh, sunny England. Sunny um, England, oh, you just said that. You said that on purpose, didn't you? <laughs> sunny, I don't know. I think, it means no, sunny and warm England. The last time, no, it, it has been sunny here. I think it was in the 80s. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it as much as I am in South Florida. So I'll, I'll right moving I'll, on, moving on. I hate you. So um, um, for for folks that uh, that haven't heard my previous uh, podcast, where um, you of course have been on Joey, um, just give the listeners a, a quick rundown as to who you are. Okay, I uh, currently I'm. Uh, I'm a professor at Nova Southeastern University. I teach in the exercise science department. I'm also the CEO of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. It is an academic nonprofit dedicated to promoting sports nutrition science. I, um, I earned my PhD uh, way back in the 1990s at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And really for the last couple decades or so, my research has focused on sports nutrition and sports supplements. So. I think today we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, one of my favorite topics, uh, protein, and hopefully the audience will learn something new or, uh, or, or something cool, you know, well, if, if that's we, the goal. As long as we, if we can at least keep them entertained, um, I always operate on the basis of, um, I don't, you know, inevitably someone's going to laugh at something and I don't care if they're laughing at me or with me, but as long as they're, <laughs> as long as they're staying amused. Um, <laughs> Because it can be difficult, kind of, in um, in science, particularly this sort of stuff. It can get a bit boring, so a bit of humour is is uh, is welcome from time to time. So, right now, the last episode that I did was with Professor Stu Phillips, and in that um, episode, we were talking about um, some research he'd done recently, where they showed. Um, you know, uh, there's a, there is a it's that sort of that golden. Uh, chalice of of our field in exercise sciences, particularly when it comes to manipulating body composition, is this idea that you can gain muscle and lose fat um, in an energy, energy deficit. And one of the things that came out in that conversation um, was the role of protein. And of course, I've explored this in many many times over the last three years, including with yourself when you did um, the last study on this topic. So the reason why I wanted to get you back on, Joey, was um, a lot of people when they talk about protein, that they're usually not defining what they mean by high protein, low protein. The other thing is, people really get their um, their knickers in the twist when they get into this this business of, well, you know, we don't need to eat that much protein. Oh, that's far too much protein. And um, I wanted to get a bit of, um, dare I say, it, context in this. Um, get a bit pragmatic about this and maybe slightly more holistic and I don't mean alternative medicine holistic I mean let's just step back a bit from all the crazy science that that we could be talking about which we will to a point but also about the relevance to what this stuff means to us in the real world and by us I mean practitioners coaches and even individuals so if we can bring it back to the beginning um, of where your research with with protein um, came into play, what what I mean, why is it that you felt it was necessary to do these studies? Um, you had me at knickers in a twist, by the way. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> knickers, underwear, underwear. It just, but, but one doesn't say underwear in a twist, Joey. It just doesn't work. So knickers. Hey, knickers. Uh, I'll be check. I'll be sure to check my knickers drawer next time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, actually, um, on a semi-serious note, uh, the whole idea or the question revolving around protein is 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 kind of interesting because what got me started was. I had a conversation, I was actually sitting around the lab at uh, Nova Southeastern University and I had a conversation with a guy who was fairly large, he was about, I'd say, uh, God, over 100 kilos, um, probably 110 kilos, and I, just out of the blue I asked him, how much do you eat? Just out of, I was just curious, how much do you eat? And he said, he started rattling off what he ate, and he, with really quite a bit of detail, he was like, well I eat this, I eat this, and he basically ate the same way all the time. And I said, how many grams of protein is that? And he started counting in his head. He's like, oh, I get 200 to 300 grams. I'm like, wow, we're actually eating a lot of protein. That's pretty cool. And then it just sort of stuck in my head that there's a lot of guys doing this already. And I thought, you know, why don't I or we in the lab just get a bunch of people and say, hey, change nothing in your life. All I want you to do is eat a lot of protein. And when I say a lot, we're talking up to 4.4 grams per kilo. Now, before I get into the details of that, I do want to say the issue of what constitutes high protein. And I'll tell you why so much of, so much of what's in the scientific literature is incorrect. Oftentimes, they define high as anything higher than the RDA, which is like comparing yourself to you know, a midget and saying you're tall. I mean, it doesn't work that way. You know, the RDA is 0.8. I think I've seen high as 1.2 grams per kilo. I've seen high as 30 to 35% of your total, total kcals. Both of those are wrong. Uh, 1.2 grams per kilo, I think I could do that in one meal if I wanted to. So what I've tried to do is operationally define high mm. as anything over 2 grams per kilo. And the reason I use that value is actually when I look at subjects that I've studied, at least in South Florida, over the last two or three years, almost to a T, trained guys and girls, these are guys who do CrossFit, do regular bodybuilding training, even endurance athletes, Almost all of them hover around 1.9 to 2.1 grams per kilo without doing anything else. I mean, that's just what they normally eat. And I thought, wow, maybe we should redefine what high is if the average athlete, at least in South Florida, maybe that, it's just a weird Florida thing, but in South Florida, they're already up to two, 2 grams per kilo. And I thought that should be the baseline. So anything above that should be high. And so I'm hoping the rest of the scientific community will be like, you know, maybe he's right. Let's, you know, let's define high as greater than two, two grams per kilo. And so really I asked the pragmatic question, if we can get guys to eat, guys and girls to eat twice that, go up to four grams per kilo, what's going to happen? And it was one of those things where I don't know clue what will happen. Maybe it'll get fat, maybe it'll get skinny, I don't know. And the funny part about that initial study was that we literally didn't find any statistically significant differences in the group that ate all that protein. Now, I will, there is a caveat. We had 20, I think 20% of people drop out because they couldn't eat that much. They just said, you know what, I'm full, I don't want to eat, I hate protein powder, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm like, okay, that's fine, I mean, you can drop out. But in a large subset of these people, there was no change in body weight. In a few, they actually lost body fat. Um, and what's interesting is it's the first protein overfeeding study where really nothing happened. And the fact that nothing happened is something interesting, you know, versus most studies, it's like, well, you gotta find something. I'm like, finding nothing in this case is actually finding something. Mm. So, so the next question came up, it's like, okay, if you're just overfeeding people and not changing their training, nothing seems to happen. 
what if we overfeed them on protein but actually change their training program the way you know athletes do typically they'll periodize their training what will happen and that was the second paper where we found in general a loss of fat mass and lean body mass tended to not change much so what's interesting is that overfeeding on protein when you combine it with a change in training seems to promote the loss of fat mass which again is kind of an interesting finding in that you can change body composition while technically overfeeding and training and obviously training hard so so that I think you know put a lot of clinicians you know their knickers in a bind as you would say there mm. um, or their panties in a bind as you would say knickers, here. knickers in a twist <laughs> knickers in a twist <laughs> knickers in a twist that's right yeah um, and so you know the next question that came up because you know, I like to look at these problems as sort of, sort of a series of simple questions of which each question is a follow-up of the previous one. So the next question is, one, uh, what would happen if you just get a bunch of really well-trained guys and follow them over the course of a year and have them vary their protein intake? So let's say for two months they go high, two months they go normal. And remember, normal is two grams per kilo. So they go from two grams per kilo to over three grams per kilo. And they just keep varying that over the course of the year. What would happen? And actually, that's the study we're finishing up and we'll present it at ISSN. But the preliminary data, there's a couple really cool things. One, there's no change in kidney function, liver function, blood lipids. If you look at all the markers of health, nothing changes, um, which is kind of cool because this will be the first interventional study over the course of years showing no change in clinical measures um, when, when subjects consume a high-protein diet. As an aside, uh, one of my students came to me the other day uh, and he mentioned that, uh, and I won't say the name of the person, it's a PhD, told him that um, if you consume protein long term like that, it's going to result in organ damage, which I was like, wow, that's interesting. I've never seen evidence for organ damage. It's funny how this stuff gets started. And get this, one of my subjects actually had to drop out because his physician told him, don't eat all that protein, it's bad for your kidneys. <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm like, well, that's kind of funny, but but you dropped out of my study. <laughs> so I was like, darn. Yeah. <laughs> but Actually, the hysterical, I think the hysterical laughing, crying combo is the one that works best. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm like, With wow, a twitchy eye. People, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People still believe that shit. I couldn't believe, I was like, wow, well, okay, I guess there are physicians still believe that. Um, so, you know, in a pragmatic sense, this is how I look at it. I know people, they try to parse a lot of science into these nitpicky detail, which, you know, for most people, it's really inconsequential. But in terms of dietary protein, there's a few things to consider if you work out. One, there's almost zero, zero uh, downside if you overfeed on protein, meaning if you're eating more than two grams per kilo, up to three grams, even four grams per kilo. But I'll still tell you this, getting up to four grams per kilo, is work. It, most people can't do it because you're eating all day. No one wants to do that. Mm. But most people can hit two grams per kilo. So there's little downside. There's definitely a possible upside in that body composition may improve. The other thing that might improve is recovery because you're flooding your body with amino acids. So from a, in a pragmatic, from a pragmatic standpoint, going from two to three grams per kilo is generally a good thing for everybody. And I know people will say, well, what if you're an endurance athlete and you increase training volume and, you know, should you eat more carbs? And my response is, you should eat more of everything, carbs, fat, protein. Don't just focus on carbs because for the most part, most endurance athletes are probably not limited by carb intake. And here's why. I have yet to work with an athlete who comes to me and says, you know what? I can't hit my carbs. How do I do it? And I'm thinking, 
You what? You have a hard time eating carbs? Who's that? I mean, that person doesn't exist. You know, so um, so I think you know the, the the basic take home message is you can eat a lot of protein with no side effects, and it can help body composition. Yeah, I you know for me, especially as I've I've transitioned down three years of talking to um, mostly really smart guys. Um, I say mostly because you you know we're not going to include you in that one, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but 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 yeah, I I. But I have a nice pen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's not let's just avoid the weather. So, um, and also as I'm now, really only a couple of months now from finishing my own doctorate, you know, there is, I mean, I've got I'm well known for my catchphrase in this podcast, which is about context. You know, I I think I would further. I mean, I have furthered views on that now, which is, you know, context is is arguably more important than the content. Um, and that is why I like talking about these things. And, and I guess, you know, um, if, if, if one had to have one question you would ever ask someone, it's always gonna be um, starting with define. Define what you mean by high protein. Define what you mean by body composition. Define what you mean by bad. You know, yeah. what's good, what's bad? No one talks about these things. And, and of course, it all gets lost. And like you say, we've got medical professionals saying, don't do this, it's bad for you. Well, we know that that isn't necessarily based on the evidence. But, you know, are these people keeping up with the evidence? Or did, did that evidence ever exist in the first place? What was the context of that? Mm -hmm. You know, th th I mean, this is a real issue that we have as, as people who are trying to translate the science. And um, I, I feel that people get too bogged down into the evidence-based thing. I, I think theory is important. Mechanistic studies are incredibly important, but they're there to help inform um, what we do as practitioners or inform our you know, decisions that we make. They're not, they're not there to be solely the only thing that we base it off. You know, there's a lot to it. So the reason why I'm mentioning this, Joey, is because with protein there are reasons to eat protein so that, that that's what i want to get into is before we get into coming back to your study because i think there's some really important stuff there you know why do we eat protein now that may sound like a stupid question but there are lots of reasons why we would eat protein maybe you could take us through some of those reasons uh, that's a good question. In fact, if you were to remove i would say if you remove water and, and, and fat from a from a human body or an animal Really, the body is composed of protein. I mean, your enzymes are made of protein. Your blood's made out of protein. Skeletal muscle, obviously, is made out of protein. Hormones are made out of protein. There's so much of your body that really is composed of protein. And here's, here's what the ironic part. When you, when you mention the word protein, to even most scientists in our category, they think of dietary protein. When, in fact, you've got to think above just dietary protein in that your body, I mean, you have... You have transport molecules that are protein. You have peptide hormones that are made of protein. You got to think of it more globally in that this is why your body needs the amino acids to make all these structural and functional elements that are part of your body. I mean, if, again, if you take away body fat and water, your body's basically just protein. And, you know, obviously minerals since your skeleton takes up, you know, quite a bit of weight in terms of your, your, your total body mass. But protein is ubiquitous. It's, it's, it is the key. I always say... Protein is the most important macronutrient because your body's made of protein. It's, 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 you can't store it unlike fat and carbs. And that's why 
to me, it's the critical nutrient that people should focus on when they when they put together a diet. Yeah, and I think it's also worth saying, and I, I you know, I won't apologize for constantly repeating myself um, throughout this podcast, but we don't eat protein. We eat foods that contain protein. And um, when we get a bit obsessed by one particular component, you know, from our theoretical understanding of nutrition, that can be at the expense of other things um, that may be usually combined with protein, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But also, you know, th there's protein and then there's protein. So, like I said, define protein. What do we mean by protein? There are different qualities of protein. Not all proteins are equal, but of course that depends, you know, in what context we're having this conversation, obviously. But I mean, what are, you know, what are the, what are the, what is the, the different types of proteins that might exist? Well, if you're talking about proteins you consume, mm. if you're talking about that, then certainly, uh, I mean, there's a wide variety, whether it's uh, milk-based proteins or proteins from skeletal muscle, i.e. beef, pork, uh, bison, uh, and, and, and fish, even, you know, skeletal muscle from fish, oddly enough, is one of the best dietary proteins you can consume. And it doesn't, and here's the funny part, it doesn't seem to fall into the category of evil proteins that vegans hate. I mean, if you talk to the average vegan, uh, you know, no beef, no pork, no chicken, oh, but I'll eat fish. And, you know, I always remind them, you know, fish is skeletal muscle, that's protein. Um, but for whatever reason, if it's in the sea versus it's on the land, it's a different kind of protein. And other proteins like scallop, shrimp, I mean, there's a wide variety of dietary proteins. And you do make a great point that you don't eat ingredients or macronutrients, you eat food. And eating fish regularly is going to be different than consuming beef regularly, I would imagine, or consuming chicken or pork regularly, versus you know beans and rice, which would be, I guess, a protein source for people who don't consume animal sources. So. Um, I'm not sure if that was the question you asked. Yeah, no, it was, no. And, and also, I guess, um, I, you know, people will have no doubt heard this, um, not just from my podcast, but it's a very current topic, is the biological value of proteins, um, particularly leucine content as it relates to its uh, relationship with... Um, um, uh, you know, adaptations to uh, uh, to training, for example. Perhaps you could just give us a quick overview of that. Well, if you're talking about, you know, I hate, not hate, uh, I'm not a fan of those, um, uh, what I call artificial measures of protein quality, like biological value, PDCAS, uh, I think there's a few others, protein efficiency ratio. Um, because in the end, they're really, really poor measures. And all you have to do is look at some of the the whey versus casein studies, where sometimes whey is better, sometimes it's no different. Um, if you're looking at just acute measures versus chronic measures, it can be different. And ultimately, the only measure that matters is whether consuming a type of protein produces a change in body composition, not really a change in acute muscle protein synthesis. Although that's important, and I think mechanistically it's, it's important to do that, looking at acute changes in muscle protein synthesis is like watching the first inning of a baseball game and trying to predict, you know, who wins the game. It doesn't work that way. Um, but I think if you look at, you know, like biological value, and I remember reading this way back when I was an undergrad, I'm like, wow, you know, uh, eggs, I think it was eggs had the highest and then milk was second or something, and I forget the exact scale because I've, 
I've, I've soon eliminated biological value from my head. Um, but because the real, the real studies that need to be done are actually studies on foods that contain the, that are those proteins and seeing if it affects body composition. And those are actually very rare. I mean, outside of milk protein, you don't have this plethora of beef studies or pork studies or chicken studies just because nobody wants to do it. And it would cost a lot to feed people a lot of chicken. It's just easier to give people protein powder. So I'm not a fan. And here's the thing. I, and vegans will ask me this. They, they say, okay, I don't eat, I don't eat animal-based proteins. Is there, is there anything I can do to compensate? And I always say, just compensate by eating more. I mean, if 20 grams of whey, let's say, is equal to 25 grams of soy or 30 grams of pea protein, just eat more of it. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. you know, and this leucine threshold stuff, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But you know what? Yeah. If you eat enough all day, you're hitting the freaking threshold. So unless well, you're like that, eating like a pop. Yeah, and that, that's why I was mentioning earlier that, you know, we have to be mindful of the relevance of this from a mechanistic perspective and what that means at a molecular level and so on. But it isn't always relevant in a real world level. And I, I, I've had this conversation with um, Kevin Tipton, uh, who, as you know, is very much into protein, of course. And um, he said the same as you. You know, at the end of the day, it's really about um, just get protein. That's your priority. Um, too many people um, are getting bogged down in, in, in this science. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think there is a danger with the over -sciencing of some of this stuff. Um, now, that's pretty, no, that's, you know, sorry to interrupt you, that's actually a fascinating point that it, when I say that people are always sort of, sort of taken aback that a scientist says there's too much science. And let me give you some examples. Yeah. Um, when people ask me, you know, is there any hard data to support X, Y, and Z? And, and, and I, always, I always throw this example back to them. I say, okay, let's go back to the 1930s when there was a guy named Jack Mullane. And he was telling people to lift weights with zero data. He had no data at all, but he said, hey, lifting weights is good for you. Um, which side would you have taken? Would you have waited 50 years for the data to show up? Or would you have listened to Jack Mullane and said, you know what? Maybe I'll give this weight training a try. Uh, another example, Joe Peter, about the same time, 1930s, 1940s, said, you know what? I think bodybuilders need to eat more protein. Did he have data? No, he had zero data. So you could either wait 50 to 60 years, or you could take Joe Weider's advice and say, you know what, maybe there's something to eating protein. Hey, muscles made of protein, you lift weights, you need to grow bigger, eat more protein. So it's funny, the people who tend to be the most sciencey, and actually most of them aren't even PhDs, I would say, they're like internet trolls, are the ones who don't realize that historically, sometimes you just gotta take risks and do things because maybe intuitively it makes sense um, and that you can't wait 50 years all the time for data to show up because yeah. you'll be dead. <laughs> yeah, but no, that, I mean, I, I did a whole podcast with a, a guy called Dr. Marco Cardinale all about over-sciencing and he was um, in charge of um, science and medicine for the British Olympic um, Association uh, during um, multiple Olympics where we did quite well. And um, <laughs> his, his, you know, his thing is, you know, there is too, there's too much, too much is going into the science and not enough on, you know, like how we coach this stuff. Um, understanding what is truly important to that person and maybe getting too much into the science, particularly with clients, with people, with athletes, yeah. 
um, is highly distracting to the things that we really need to be doing. And I think that's important for us as, as practitioner researchers or people who in one way or another are engaging with people in the real world is we, we need to know the science because that's what we need to know. That isn't necessarily what they need to know. We need to be very careful about how we translate that. Um, and I, and I, think, I think that that's where some of these problems, um, um, you know, where this stuff's happening, which is why I do this podcast, because I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get guys like you who are doing the lab studies to tell us about what this means and what the context of it is in the real world. Um, so just bring us back to protein, because I, there's some issues here that I think are well worth us discussing. So, so going back to this idea of why we eat protein, now, apart from our needs um, for things like amino acids and so on, and we won't get into biological value, um, Joey, but um, there are benefits to consuming protein-rich foods um, that goes beyond delivering the nutrients. There's the impact that protein can have on um, appetite regulation, that sort of thing. What, what are your feelings about the value of that because I, I feel that that is one reason why we should eat quote unquote more protein than we need depending on how we define need. No, actually that, that's a good point. The issue of appetite regulation I think is important but the idea, and you had, you had brought this up earlier, the idea that we consume foods, we don't consume ingredients or nutrients. That when you consume protein-containing foods, uh, or protein foods, for instance, fish, beef, pork, chicken, etc., it means, you know, it's, it's sort of like this. If you're consuming something, it means you're consuming less of something else. If I drink more milk, I'm drinking less soda. If I drink more water, I'm drinking less beer. And a lot of people don't view consuming protein that way. They're like, well, what am I going to do with all these extra calories? When in fact, think of it this way. If I ask you to do an extra protein shake a day, which is fairly easy, it might mean it might inhibit your appetite enough that you don't have that cookie in the afternoon. Maybe you don't have that frappuccino with 300 calories as well. Because a lot of times we subconsciously substitute foods just because there's only X amount of hours in the day to eat. So if I get up in the morning and I have, let's say, you know, a, a scrambled eggs or something, something that's pro that has protein in fat. It'll probably, actually for me, I know it does, it inhibits my appetite more so than if I have a bagel. Bagel with cream cheese. For whatever reason, bagels, because they're so calorically dense in carbs, it kills my appetite very quickly, but then I'm super hungry later. And, and I think for a lot of people, that's how some of the higher glycemic carbs work, for me especially. So it's not so much I'm getting the exact same number of calories in breakfast, it's, it's more the effect, it's the after effect down the road. And... And that's the beauty of eating foods that are high in protein. You know, your typical, you know, uh, you know, chicken, beef, fish, uh, and even you can add milk-based proteins there because it ends up really substituting for other foods that you might eat, which may not be as as, as important for you. Um, <coughs> and that goes into the heart of when you look at diet studies, um, and they're looking at you know single foods or single ingredients. The idea that you can use or point to a single food or single ingredient and say, aha, that's the, you know, that's what causes X, Y, and Z is a fallacy because if, you know, someone had told me once today, I read this study showing that girls who drink um, soda, you know, they, no, girls who, yeah, girls who drink soda have a loss of bone mass. And I said, well, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is girls who drink soda 
are not drinking milk. So is it the not drinking milk that causes loss of bone mass, or is it drinking the soda? Because people substitute liquids, people substitute solid foods, and people forget that all the time. Well, you know, there's another thing. is Girls who drink soda obviously aren't doing CrossFit. Right! <laughs> <laughs> the dreaded CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, it's a total, total side note here, which um, I, actually I will find this link and I'll add it to the notes on our podcast together. My all-time favorite um, sketch that you can see on YouTube is um, where there's a, there's a section of a, of a uh, I think it's a, a, um, a Hitler-type movie, but they redubbed <laughs> it. They redubbed it, and he's in the sort of the war room, and, and Hitler is just going nuts at his generals. But they they've redubbed it to CrossFit, and um, I think that, I think <laughs> I, I think I think there's even some uh, some nutritional uh, inferences there. So I'll, I'll I'm 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 insisting that everyone watches that video. Anyway, that was totally <laughs> off topic, Joe. Um, so in fact, we should do an ISSM one of these things, I reckon. So. <laughs> So, um, bringing us back to uh, the relevance of protein. Now, um, you know, I've said we don't eat protein, we eat food that contains protein. But if I'm going to ignore what I just said, and I said, right, okay, if we do focus on, on um, protein calories, fat calories, and carbohydrate calories, why is it, or why is it not, our interest um, in our interest to focus the bulk of our, our well not necessarily the bulk but to, to be very well focused on protein calories in our diet if we're interested in energy balance um, actually in fact I think we should be focused on protein in fact um, the you know I, I have a saying that I use with some clients is that uh, eating should never be about mathematics and certainly the client they don't want to count stuff they're like you want grams of this, this and that. I'm like, no, no, no. I'll ask you to count one thing, and that one thing is, let's figure out how much protein you're eating. That's all the mathematics I want. And in fact, the reason protein should form the default macronutrient, um, actually, let me backtrack. The reason carbohydrate has been the default macronutrient literally for 40 years is because if you go back to the old exercise physiology data where uh, when the muscle biopsy was first used, I believe it was in the Scandinavian countries, and... Uh, what do they focus on? They focus on glycogen repletion. So they take a biopsy, they feed them, they're like, oh, you got to get X amount of sugar to replete, gly replete uh, muscle glycogen. So in essence, exercise physiology has, has maybe indirectly caused this, this focus on carbohydrate because all exercise physiologists focused on was glycogen repletion. And then people started to ask the question, okay, well, you replete glycogen, but how many sports are really dependent on glycogen levels? And the answer is most are not. I mean, shot put, football, rugby, um, high jump, long jump, triple jump, all the short track and field events, glycogen, who cares, right? Um, so that was sort of the problem that came from exercise physiology, and it sort of filtered into dietetics and whatnot. Now people are sort of rolling it back and saying, oh, wait a minute, you have limited stores of glycogen, Carbohydrate technically, you know, for most sports is not limiting in terms of intake. Why don't we focus on the two macronutrients, i.e. protein and fat, that are probably more important, one, for recovery. And when people think of exercise adaptation, they forget that the recovery aspect is just as important as the performance aspect during training. And that, I think that's where protein has to be the default macronutrient that 
you you pattern a diet for for athletes and and also the fact that body composition is probably better on protein calories versus carb calories mainly because of the thermic effect and NEAT and all that fun stuff that's another reason why it should be the default macronutrient yeah no I, I would agree with you and I think there's there's quite some movement now to try and get away with this idea of working out how many calories a day we need I mean we you know it, I've explored this quite a few times with various people on this podcast and you know in the same way I discussed we don't eat protein we eat food we don't eat calories we eat food um, but I think we're a lot closer to understanding what our requirements are um, based on say grams of protein per kilogram of body weight grams of, of fat and so on um, and then starting to look at um, glycogen availability maybe and glycogen depletion and what our needs are for glycogen repletion which like you said isn't much I mean it is it is fascinating to look at some of those old studies um, you know there's old biopsy studies for example and um, yeah. you can tell that those Scandinavians had an odd sense of humor <laughs> <laughs> why not you know they were doing that stuff on themselves Joey that's what they were doing <laughs> so um, I you know that's where I am in my own practice I tend to focus more on um, you know the amounts of these things per body weight and then get some sort of an idea of how, how much actual fuel or carbs they're actually burning um, but even then it's a it, it's a really difficult thing to get right and most people they just can't get their mindset around that it is a nightmare to count calories and and all that stuff so you know, in terms of controlling a macro, and I hate that whole idea, but if we have to control a macro, I think the easiest one is going to be to control protein. Now, for those that are particularly interested in body composition um, focused outcomes, how do you feel um, we should be controlling for um, our protein intake from a pragmatic perspective? I think from a pragmatic perspective each meal should have should contain a protein should contain a protein food um, whether it's a shake whether it's milk whether it's a type of meat if each meal whether you're eating three meals four or five or six meals a day if they each contain protein I think it does a couple things one you need the amino acids for basic recovery and hypertrophy or whatever else your goals are um, and two it satiates the appetite so that you're not craving Oreo cookies, you know, like I do when I eat like fried rice all day. Um, those, I mean, doing it that way, I think, is probably the best thing to do. And that way, you don't actually count calories. It's just that, you know, I'll tell the clients, did you get protein in your meal? And they're like, oh, well, no, I didn't get any protein. I'm like, you got to get protein in your meal because there's a lot of other things it helps regulate. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when I talk about people getting their knickers in a twist, okay, um, or getting their pants in a bind. That just doesn't work for me, knickers in a twist. <laughs> so so they, they really do, and like you say, there tends to be a lot of people who, who tend to get highly engaged in social media as opposed to um, working with real people in the real world. And in the real world, I do find, particularly athletes, they they are not the sorts of people that are going to count calories or no. you know they're just not going to do it and by the way they've got a day of training they're doing uh strength and conditioning they're doing skills practice um mm -hmm. 
there's strategy stuff to talk about. Um, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on. What they're not going to do is weigh their foods and count their food. So, what you know, there are people who are who are dependent on counting calories, counting macros, and I get it. It's a way of controlling intake, particularly for more physique orientated people. It is a strategy. It's a tool in the toolbox. I get it. But when we're trying to do this stuff with people that can't do that, we need we need to be able to. Um, help people implement this stuff into the into the real world so do you do you find that there are any particular techniques um, that, that you have found um, either yourself or you know in the many people that you've met that practice this stuff that has been particularly effective at doing that you know what's, what's interesting is that um, uh, I have a good friend who's a, the head strength coach at a major university, and um, he deals with hundreds of student athletes at the college level. And he said that most of these kids, I mean, they're 18 to 19 years old, um, eat like total shit. It's just bad. He said, the one time I can control what they eat is when they show up to work out and they leave. And he says, this is the one time where, you know, people may, may argue about the science, but he goes, if I don't give them a post-workout protein shake, they may not get protein that day. They might eat Fritos, I might eat pizza, which I guess has like five grams of protein or something silly like that. So by controlling what they do, and this is for me personally also, I, I often tell athletes, if you can do a post-workout shake, make it you know as much protein as you can, 40 to 50 grams, at least you're getting 40 to 50 grams that I know about. What you do before that, I can't control. What you do after that, I can't control. But God, when you're done working out, we can control that. So from a pragmatic standpoint, I've found that it's the, the post-workout time, because one, you're so semi-hungry enough to drink a shake, uh, and two, you can control what they do, is probably the most practical time to impact protein intake. When you're dealing with the rest of the day, unless you live with these people, you really don't know what they're doing. So. Um, Arguing about the science is fun for academics, but from a pra pragmatic standpoint, every athlete should be doing a post-workout shake. And in fact, they should do it as soon as they're done because it represents another meal. And for a lot of these guys, in fact, in college, it is quite common for athletes to skip breakfast, skip lunch, work out in the afternoon, they have their practice, which lasts anywhere from two to four hours, and then they hog out at dinner. So imagine that, they don't eat all day, what if I said, hey, could you just drink some protein shake, you know, as you're walking from class to class? I mean, it, you know, people try, like you said, they almost over-science it when, in fact, in the real world, it's like, it's almost the simplest things that you wish they would do because it's the simple things, those small things that will produce dramatic changes over the long haul. So from a practical standpoint, I'm a big fan of, you know, after you work out, get some protein in because, you know, most people are not, at least in the college level. There's physique athletes. I mean, who does that? There's a few. There's always a few nutty ones who want to do these shows. But let's face it: most athletes care about winning than how they look. Um, even though in our category, it seems to be we're populated by people who focus on how you look versus how you perform. Whereas I think you and I, or maybe I'm putting words in mouth, but I think we're more interested in performance, not looks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, speak for yourself, Jay. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I do. I'm, you know, I, my, my, my clients are performance, um, and at the end of this podcast, we'll talk about the uh, the conferences that we're putting on ISSN um, International Conference um, 
in Florida, uh, but also the London Conference, and we're going to be touching on these topics at both conferences. Um, but um, you know, my, my interest in this is is this idea of well, what you know, what happens? What happens if I eat too much? Um, you know, there's this there, there's two sort of things that happen. Either someone's going to freak out because they're over-consuming calories, right? So we'll, we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. The other one is, is my kidneys are going to shut down. Or like you said, the doctors told me not to do that because um, I won't make it out of his office alive if I'm overdoing the protein. So, I mean, you know, if, if we can, if we understand that there is a, a sensible reason to ensure that we're eating um, plenty of protein, we won't define that right now. Um, but what, you know, if like in your study, for example, people are consuming huge amounts of protein and yet they're not gaining weight specifically, what what's going on there in your opinion? Yeah, the protein overfeeding data is really, I mean, it's really interesting because we actually have, there's data on carb and fat overfeeding. I mean, the overfeeding data where they give them Snickers bars and some other like sugar filled stuff. It does show you get fatter when you overfeed on that stuff. Now, mind you, those studies are done on sedentary people, not people who work out. But the protein overfeeding data, it is true. You can, you can eat up to three, four, maybe 500 extra calories a day of protein, and it doesn't seem to impact total body weight so much. It might actually promote a loss of fat mass. And no one knows the mechanism, although we speculate about it. It could be, you know, there's the thermic effect of the protein itself just from eating it. But there's also, you know, some people think eating a lot of protein contributes to an increase in NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So you tend to be more active throughout the day. I know when I eat a lot of protein, it's, um, I'm literally, my body temperature is hot all day. It's like I'm just hot and I'm sweaty and, and that's why, you know, I've, I've, I've logged my protein. Joe, that's because you're I'm... in Florida. Sorry to break it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was something. I just forgot it was Florida. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so oddly enough, my protein intake hovers around 1.9 to about 2.0 grams per kilo, and I don't go above that because yeah, I sweat too much, and it is it is damn hot in Florida. Um, but the increase in calories without the gain in weight, I think, is really fascinating because one, it shows that there's a potential improvement in body composition just by substitute. You can either substitute carbs with protein or just eat more protein. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that we have now eight months of data on these guys overfeeding on protein with no side effects on kidney function, liver function, blood lipids, anything, blood glucose, nothing, nothing changes. Um, so for those people who are constantly, you know, bad-mouthing, you know, protein's bad for your kidneys, you know, it's up there with Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and, you know, Kim Kardashian having a high IQ, so. Yeah, yeah. So you, now that you've mentioned Kim Kardashian, I'm gonna have to edit this podcast. This is, called, this is called We Do Science. What have you done? <laughs> You've you brought us down to the, to the gutters of... of, of. Anyway, um, yeah, because no, the, the reason why I'm, I want to talk about this um, is because being realistic, when people are overweight or, you know, when people are super hungry or whatever, they're going to overeat something. So yep. we need to help people understand that if, if that's gonna happen, and it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, what should people overeat? And I guess what I'm hearing is, you know, it's not a bad idea to get people to concentrate on protein um, because the 
the, the side effect of that is they're probably going to eat less of something else, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> here's the problem though. When people want to overeat, and I'm guilty of this as well, sugar tastes better than protein. I mean, yeah. there's, it's not even close. Yeah. Sugar tastes better than protein. The overfeeding data on protein, even some fat foods like uh, peanuts uh, or nuts, you seem to you can overfeed on those without getting a, you know a, these tremendous gain in body weight. So I think you know practically speaking, most people don't sit around and watch the telly as you guys call it um, and say, you know what, I think I'm going to eat a chicken breast. No, they're like I'm getting a bag of Cheetos and a freaking beer. You know? Yeah. So, no, but the body so the bodybuilders the bodybuilders and the physique athletes that's what they're doing because they they got their little six pack bag right next to them. And, and 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 next to their telly is a is a is a is a box of uh, chicken and broccoli. <laughs> oh man! Oh, yeah, sounds like a party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, anyway, that's another topic for another day. That area. So, um, you know, I think it, it's important we do discuss the, um, you know, this th this idea that eating too much protein is bad for us. Um, obviously, define bad. Um, would have to come up in that conversation, but you know what, what's being said, and, and what is the real situation as far as you're aware? Yeah, the the whole kidney, uh, the the proteins being bad, typically falls under the the concern of renal function or kidney function. And I've asked a few clinicians what their you know what would be the the classic measure for kidney function, and most of them tell me GFR or glomerular filtration rate. It's the part of the kidney that filters the junk that you need to excrete. Um, and here's the thing, there's data on this already. When you look at GFR, or all these other measures of renal function, it doesn't change. And here, let me give you some, some interesting data. On my subject, nothing changes in terms of that. But I have two subjects who, they not only eat high protein, they eat crazy high protein. One is up to, on his low, his low amount of protein is 400 grams a day. That's his low amount. He prefers to go up to 600 grams a day of protein. His renal function is fine. And in fact, I was looking at his blood work the other day, and his cholesterol is crazy low. Triglycerides are crazy low. I'm like, man, what does he eat? And I looked, he eats protein shakes, he eats chicken, and he eats vegetables. I mean, that's really his diet. Chicken, vegetables, and protein shakes. Um, and his, his blood work looks, looks crystal clear. And all these guys, it's, you never know... If you look at their blood work over time, you're like, wow, nothing changes, nothing changes, nothing changes. Um, what's the intervention? Oh, they're eating a lot of protein. You know, so I don't know why, you know, this issue of protein being bad, just it seems to have legs. And clinicians are among the worst in promoting it because, you know, I, I you know, when students tell me about, you know, when teachers, you know, mention this in class, I'm like, well, just ask them to provide evidence. Maybe I haven't read the study. Maybe there's studies out there. I, I admit I spend too much time on the beach and I don't read enough papers, but maybe there's a paper out there. I want to know. Um, and of course, they can never find the paper, so <laughs> it's total BS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, as you're mentioning that, um, I mean, how do you feel about this idea of evidence-based as opposed to evidence-informed? In what particular? Well, generally, I mean, in sports science, obviously, and I, I guess we, I mean, that's been a theme of half this conversation today is people, you know, oh. generally over science stuff. But Oh, okay. okay. Here, here's yeah. how I look at it. In fact, um, the analogy I use is science is a roadmap. 
And let's say, you know, in the old days when you actually had to open a paper map and look. Oh, so you're at point A. Yeah, now you have a GPS and it just tells you where to turn, right? But, you know, you open up the map, you have point A, you want to get to point B. There's the straight shot. There's sort of the roundabout shot. There's the more scenic route. And each has its pluses and minuses, but each will get you to the same point. That's how I view signs. Um, you know, people will argue, again, the little minute details of things like whether should I have protein, you know, immediately post-workout, one hour post-workout, five hours post-workout. I'm like, who gives a shit? Just eat it. Um, don't worry about those minute details. You know, should I do two grams per kilo, three grams? I mean, do something that's more than what you're doing now if you're like something low like one or 1.5 grams per kilo. But focus on the big picture. Know that there are multiple ways to get to a place and that there's no single way that works for everybody. And I think that's where, you know, it's interesting. There's people who are, you know, evidence-based, 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 when in fact, a lot of what we do in sports is we have evidence, I mean, and that's important, but a lot of it is really trial and error. And, and, and I'll give examples like I'll ask someone, you know, hey, how do you train? And this could be a scientist. And of course, scientists are always evidence-based. They're like, well, I do this, I do that, I do this. And I said, is there a single study to show that that specific kind of training does what you say it does? And the answer is always no. Of course, there's no study on that particular way of training. But what we do is we borrow principles of uh, the scientific principles of exercise training to put together something that makes sense. Same with nutrition. There, there may not be a study that tells you exactly that this is what works for you, but if you take the basic principles of science and apply it, you can massage it so that it works for that particular individual, and then you can always massage it as you go along. So, yeah. um, you know, it's a roadmap, and you don't always have to take the same road. Yeah, no, 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 I, you know, I've said this before, other guests on my podcast have said this before, but ultimately, you know, we, we, we need, we need a, a depth of, of knowledge from science, the mechanistic stuff, of course, because we need to differentiate, you know, the, uh, the quality science from the flawed science, you know, that's important. Right. But as I hope that we've demonstrated today, and I, I tried to demonstrate in many of my podcasts is the importance of not overly focusing just on the science there are there's bigger things and you know yep. um when i'm with my athletes my football players my rugby players and so on sometimes it's just trying to get them to eat enough vegetables in a day you know <laughs> yes. like 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 a vegetable you know is, is a, <laughs> no, that's is true. A eat, one. eat one piece of broccoli <laughs> yeah so you know ah uh, yeah i mean it it it's it, it, it's a fascinating arena that we're in um sports nutrition or performance nutrition however which however you want to label it is the newest area within sports science i mean most of most of this stuff's also new there's so much more data there's way more questions than answers right and that's what makes it fun for us because you're right there are so many questions that still need investigating and so you know, the, uh, you know, it's funny that, because uh, I even tell my own kid, I'm like, did you at least eat one vegetable today? And, and you know, the answer's like, well, maybe. And then I have another kid who, I, and, you know, my other daughter, who I said, did you eat any protein today? And she'll give me an answer like this. But I had some two days ago. Does that count? Literally, she'll eat protein like every other day. And I'm like, and yet she's much taller than me and she's lean and fat. So go yeah. figure that one out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, listen, I think that's pretty much 
as much as we can get into with the time that we have available today. Um, let's um, let's just quickly take advantage of uh, um, the next few minutes we have, um, just to um, unashamedly uh, promote um, the ISSN annual conference in Florida this year, and also the one in London. So, um, oh yes. So, so tell us about what's uh, what's happening um, this year in uh, in Florida at the annual conference. Yes, the thirteenth uh, annual ISSN conference is. On a beach, so for those of you who get bored with science, you can always go on the beach. This is Clearwater Beach, Florida. It is two and a half full days of science. Um, we uh, uh, will have roughly about 30 speakers there, so literally the world's experts, almost all of them will be there. So it's, it's one of those things where you have to go if you're a fan of sports, nutrition, science. And also, I've added a new new segment, and you're taking part in this, by the way. Oh, yeah, good. We are having, yes. And in fact, it, 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 the timing is perfect. It's right before happy hour. So right after this, people will want to drink. So we are having what's called the ISSN Data Blitz. And the oh, way yeah. it works is there's going to be about 20 of us, and we each have one minute, one slide, to talk about whatever cool stuff we just found. So, you know. For those of us who talk fast, we can do it. For people who talk slow, like Darren Willoughby, I hope he won't be there. He'll yeah. like say three words and they'll be done. So Perfect. I'm looking forward to that because people are going to be, you know, they'll, they'll get a ton of signs in like 20 minutes from 20 speakers and it'll be super cool. So that'll be fun. Yeah, now I, I have to say, I, I've attended, as you know, the annual conferences in the States for quite a few years now. And they are, they are it, 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 it's not just great speakers and great science and learning about the latest stuff that's going on but it's just damn good fun um yes and i think that that's that's another great thing and and again you're rubbing it in again by having it at, at, by the by the beach um <laughs> but what a great place for a conference so anyway but that obviously is on the issn's uh website um um also uh in the same area on the website you can learn about the issn london um, conference, which um, is the second um, conference we've ever had in the UK. This will be an annual event now, um, and it's being held on the 16th to 17th of April at Middlesex University, where I'm based. And uh, we have a wide range of excellent speakers over the course of two days, and you can learn about that. Download the conference flyer, of course, at um, the ISSN's website. Yeah, I look forward to that. You know, I've never actually been to London. Amazing. Well, well, one of two things will happen. Either, either you're going to get arrested as soon as you land, or, or, or the next time we see a picture of you on the social media, it's going to be you and the Queen having a cup of tea. <laughs> I think that's going okay, to be okay. I'll take it. That'll, that'll be great, won't it? Um, yeah. So anyway, look. Thank you, uh, Jerry. I appreciate hey, your time. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Florida, but also having you here in London in the near future. Um, again, just another little bit of promotion about the ISSN diploma that I run. Um, any comments you've got on that? You know, bribery. About <laughs> <laughs> the ISSN diploma. I will tell you this: that on average, they score the highest on the CISSN. This is compared to grad students in the United States who are, who are studying sports nutrition. So whatever you're teaching them, it's, it's working because they do really well on that exam. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. They, they work incredibly hard. Um, so um, anyway, if you want to learn more about the ISSN diploma, just go to issndiploma.com 
Um, and if you want to come and do an MSc, Master of Science in Sports Nutrition, um, with me at Middlesex University, that is a an option for our ISSN diploma graduates, which is very cool. Um, Anyway, um, for more information about all of that stuff and uh, all the previous podcasts that I have done, just go to guruperformance.com. I, of course, am Lauren Brannock and look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all very soon.